Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. I'm a software developer by trade. This is what I do during the day. Uh, and I work on pretty large-scale software uh, deployments. So uh, when you talk about like millions of users per month, uh, that's, what I, that's what I deal with uh, on a daily basis. And so as part of my job, uh, I am required to be on call uh, like once every three weeks for a week. Um, it's an interesting thing being on call. It's a little stressful. Um, I'm the second tier, so I'm usually pretty secure in thinking, okay, well, like somebody else is probably going to get this call before I do, but I know that if something hits my phone, if I'm on call and something hits my phone, it means everything is on fire. Everything, like, and, it's, and so I, I have it set up so that on my phone, on my work phone, uh, that it will, uh, it will tell me, uh, no matter what time it is, no matter what, like whether I have my do not disturb on or whatever else, it will break through do not disturb, turn the volume all the way to maximum and play a sound to get me out of bed because at 1.30 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, this is going to happen and I'm going to have to get on a conference call because everything has gone downhill. Some of you might feel this pressure. Some of you have been on call before for different things. You might be first responder uh, which y- your fires are probably a lot worse than mine. Ray knows uh, a, little, a little about being a first responder. Uh, your, your problems are worse than mine, sir, uh, most of the time, I assume. Um, but when a server goes down, when uh, our applications are, are a mess, uh, my phone makes a sound, and it uh, is supposed to wake me up and get me on a conference call. I say all of this uh, as a segue into a, a, a story uh, about the other night. So... I have this all set up. It's ready to go. And I kind of forget how I have my settings done on my work phone. We don't get many calls in the middle of the night. Well, uh, on Friday morning, Thursday night, I think it was, uh, in the middle of the night, I'm sound asleep. Ashley is sound asleep. Complete dark in the room. And all of a sudden, the only thing that I hear coming from somewhere in the room, and I can't identify exactly where, is a little girl singing. Something's broken, something's broken. It's your fault. It's, 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 my, it's my little song that tells me, hey, everything is wrong. But it's this little girl in the dead of night singing in my room. And Ashley is like, she wakes up and she's like, what is happening right now? Like, this is one of those movies Pastor Brandon watches. Like, it is bad, right? She has no idea that I have this sound set up. And so, like, she goes, what is happening? And she actually, like, puts her hands over her ears and goes, like, I can't hear this right now. Like, this is, like, psychologically breaking to me right now, okay? She's not an easy scare, but, like, at this point in time, it was just, like, everything is wrong. And I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, what is happening right now? I wasn't thinking demonic presence, but I was thinking I've just been hacked. Like something terrible has happened and somebody is playing weird sounds on my phone to try to creep me out or something like that. Uh, I was wrong. It was, uh, it was work. Uh, and uh, my, my alarm bells were going off and I had to get on a phone call at 1.30 in the morning uh, to try to figure out what was going on. Turns out it wasn't my problem at all. Uh, and it had already been escalated through several tiers of people because nobody was fast enough on the got it button on their phone. I say all of that to say that... Uh, we were sort of caught unaware. Uh, we were caught sleeping. Uh, and this passage that we're going to be in today, Mark chapter 13, 24 through 37, uh, has to do with not being caught sleeping. So this morning, it's my hope that you won't be caught unaware, that you won't be like Ashley, who had no idea what was coming who had no idea that this sound was going to go off and had no idea what it was associated with even when she heard it. And that you wouldn't be like me the other night, forgetting 
what I had known, what I had already set up, what I had already known beforehand, but had forgotten what was going on. And so it terrified me too. I don't want you to be caught unaware. I don't want you to be caught sleeping this morning. And so I want to read our passage, Mark 13, 24 through 37. If you're able, I'd like you to stand with us as we uh, honor the word of God as it's read. Uh, We do this out of respect for God's word. We recognize it as inspired and inerrant. Uh, and that uh, we should confer upon uh, God's word the respect that it is due. Uh, All the rest of the sermon is my words. These are God's words. Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 24, says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Today, or truly, I say to you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you to all, stay awake. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray to him one more time that he would help us understand. Lord, I pray that this morning you would apply your word to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may not be found asleep when you come. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who do not know you, that they would come to know you through this passage, that Lord, all here would hear the urgency with which this passage relates the second coming. I pray, Lord God, that you might open our eyes, help us to comprehend what Jesus has said here to us that, Lord, we might glorify you with our lives and that we might preach the gospel to others. For, Lord, we know that it is imperative that we do so. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Thank you, Lord God, for the grace of this warning. Thank you, Lord God, for the grace of showing us the signs that we might know what's coming. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. The first part of this passage, verses 24 through 27, begins a new section in this chapter. I've said it before, and I'll say it again uh, in case some of you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. Uh, I understand this passage to be a, a linear progression of time. So it begins with the period leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and it proceeds from there. Uh, probably closer to verse 20, starts going further on from that point into the church age, the rest of the church age. And then in verse 24, Jesus transitions and begins speaking about the second coming. He's talking about the end of days, the day of the Lord, whatever you want to call it, right? Armageddon, right? It's the end of all things. He says, this is what I'm going to start talking about. He, he gets this, this sort of linear passage of time through this passage. And we see this uh, because he he begins uh, this this, uh, section in verse 24 with after that tribulation. And so we see that there is a linear progression from uh, verse 19 uh, and then 20 through 23, uh, where he begins talking about the, uh, the abomination of desolation. And then it says that the Lord had not cut short the days. So he's stopping that tribulation says no human being would have been saved. That's verse 20. Uh, and then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ. Look, there he is. Do not believe it. I believe this is a description of the whole church age. 
It's the point in time after 70 AD until the second coming. He's saying, until that point, you will have false Christs and false prophets. You will have people who will come and try to deceive the church. You'll have people who claim to be Jesus in one way or another, or who come to proclaim to you prophecies that will uh, mislead you and misguide you. This is going to be our core problem for this time during the church age. That is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second. And he says that these false Christs and false prophets will, if possible, lead the, even the elect astray. Interesting passage that we aren't going to preach on today. But he says, be on guard in verse 23, for I have told you all these things beforehand. He says, hey, look, it's okay. You're, knowing what's, you're gonna know what's com- coming up. And he says this throughout this passage. I'm giving you the signs. I'm giving you what is going to happen so that you are not caught off guard. And so in verse 24, he says, after that tribulation, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and then after an additional period of more false Christs and false prophets, these people who do miracles and do signs and wonders, that's verse 22 I just read, those who deceive if possible the elect. After all of that, he says, in those days, after that tribulation, then what? Then the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. It says, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is an interesting turn of phrase. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. This is not poetic language, I don't think. I don't think Jesus is using much in the way of poetic language here in this passage at all. I think he is actually talking about a cataclysmic event. It is the end of things. It says, hey, the the sun is going to go dark and because the sun goes dark, what happens? The moon goes dark too, doesn't it? Right? He's describing a physical phenomenon. I don't know when they figured out that like the, the moon doesn't have its own lighting. I couldn't find the place and time in history uh, with my limited study time this week. Uh, so, uh, but I, I imagine that many people didn't really realize that the sun and the moon didn't have their own light sources, right? But that the, the moon merely reflected the light of the sun. So Jesus is describing a physical reality here. He's saying, now when the sun goes out, the moon goes away too. And then he describes another physical phenomenon. Some people have said that uh, the stars falling from the heavens and the powers in the heavens being shaken is some sort of, uh, of poetic language talking about socioeconomic upheaval. Now, I think that's probably going to happen in the last days. When people see the sun go dark, it's going to cause some problems. But I think that he is being very clear here. He's not using poetic language. He's saying that we are going to see cataclysmic events happening in the heavens, not just sun and moon going dark, but stars falling from the sky, whatever that may be, whether it's asteroids or meteors or whatever else, like maybe the whole universe is is being torn to shreds. I don't know. But he is describing something that we will see with our own eyes. I said it a couple of weeks ago. We will not have to wonder if Jesus is coming back soon when we see these things. If you see everything go dark and stuff is falling from the skies, and this is a global event, when you see this happening, it's time. It's time. And he says, after all of this, verse 26, and then... So after this, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. What an incredible thing to say. Again, people might think that Jesus' second coming is some sort of spiritual reality that we will not see with our own eyes. I don't see it here. He says, they will see the Son of Man coming in glory and power. I don't think that's going to be a small thing, and I think it will overshadow all of the cataclysmic events that have happened up to that point. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 describes the day of the Lord like this. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is what's being described by Jesus in verse 26. He is going to come again visibly on the clouds. As I've said before, do not be deceived by false Christs or false prophets who say, look, here's the Christ or there he is. Oh, you missed him. If anyone ever tries to deceive you with that, no, you did not. You cannot. You will see him. Jesus even now is reigning, but his kingdom will be complete on that last day and it will be visible. And then... In verse 27, it says that he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is a description of gathering the the elect, that is all of God's people from everywhere in the, the, the entirety of creation. From the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from the four winds, that's the four different directions, the cardinal directions. He's saying from everywhere. And that implies that God's kingdom is not just for a specific set of individuals like national Israel, for example. It is for all people. God's kingdom is for all people. And he says that I am going to gather them all from the four winds. I'm going to gather them from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. Guess what that means? If we ever populate Mars, it's okay. Jesus can get them there too. First Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17 says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we are alive, or who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, again what's being described here, coming in power and glory with a cry of command, that's the power, with the voice of an archangel, that's the glory, and with the sound of a trumpet, again more glory, And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. What an amazing promise. All those who have gone before us will be raised from the dead first. And they will go to meet Jesus. And then we will be caught up too if we're still there at the time. If we're not, guess what? You get to go first. It's all right. What an amazing reality. This is going to be an incredible thing that none of us have ever seen before. It's going to be something that just boggles your mind. You might have been told about it beforehand, but the coming of the Lord will change how you view reality as it stands. It's going to be an incredible time. This is a good thing because there is, he's preaching surety. He's preaching that there is, there is absolute sureness, if that's a word, that can be had, that you will go to be with him if you're in Christ. Even if you pass away, even if your, your children's children pass away, even if the, the generations that proceed from you for hundreds of years pass away, even then you will go to be with him and you will be resurrected into glory. This is the kind of eschatology that I like. This is hopeful eschatology. It might be an incredibly difficult thing to comprehend with our minds as we see it, but on that day, there is hope. There is absolute sureness. So then what can we say? Well, again, the the second coming will be visible. These preliminary signs are cataclysmic, not local occurrences, okay? They are going to be global We're going to see them. And there are some things about uh, eschatology that are unclear, but the visible return of Christ in power and glory is not one of them. All right? We can have all sorts of wonderful discussions about different positions along the the eschatological uh, uh, continuum. All right? And I say eschatological. For everybody who might not know what that word means, it means the study of last things. Okay? We can have all these wonderful discussions. In fact, 
my friend Lewis and I uh, had, a, had a, a quick conversation about eschatology the other night. And we came to find out that we are slightly different in our perspectives on eschatology. But guess what? It doesn't divide us. The second thing I think that we can learn here from this passage so far is that the second coming will be terrifying to a degree. Look, this universal cataclysm, the sights and experiences that we've never seen before, the resurrection of the dead. I mean, I don't know if people are coming out of graves, like physically, I don't know what's going to happen there, all right? I'm not making a whole lot of conjecture. Uh, People have risen from graves before. Uh, at, At the death of Christ, people actually popped out of graves. Go read that. But I don't know how this will look, but it will be something that we will see and, and it will be so unfamiliar to us that it could strike fear in us. We could be fearful. And to be honest with you, just the sight of Jesus himself should strike fear in you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To see that, the glory just beholden with your own eyes will, will strike some fear. But verse 23, going back there, he says, be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Why is that? I talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago. If my, if my parents had told me when I was a kid that when we went car shopping, there was an end to it and there was donuts at the end, uh, that man, like that would have been a lot easier to stomach. I would have been less taken off guard. I would have felt a lot less uncomfortable. It's the same thing. These crazy things are going to happen, but Jesus has told us all these things beforehand. We need not worry. And the fear of God in that moment will be met with comfort for his people. Why is this? Well, we know God's justice, which is a fierce thing. It's a fearsome thing. But we also know his mercy, don't we? We know God's wrath. We understand it. But we also know his love. And we may lie prostrate in worship in that moment. We might be shaken by his raw glory and power but we will also remain secure in Christ. These two things met. Fear of the Lord and just being able to be secure in Christ, knowing that he loves us. I look forward to this day. I don't know if everyone feels that way. I look forward to this day because I know it can only get better. Um, There are some people that that are worried about what might happen, uh, what heaven might be like, not all that worried. It's going to get better. It's got to get better. Y'all feel that? Yeah, it's got to get better. Verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. He's saying when these things happen, There will be no need for speculation, guessing, or worry. There will be certainty. When you see these things happening, even when the disciples saw the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, he could go, he is nearing to the gates. And as we continue to see these things revealed to us, he edges ever closer. The eminence of Christ's return has always been a thing for the Christian. We know that he is now closer to returning than he has ever been because it is a fixed point in time, right? God knows, the Father knows when Jesus is coming back. It is a fixed point in time and we are just edging ever closer to it. So I can say with absolute certainty that we are closer now than we have ever been. And like the wars and rumors of wars and Things like that were signs of the destruction of the temple and the abomination of desolation, which was probably the sacrifice of a pig in the temple ruins, uh, was a sign to the, the Christians to run to the mountains. So the cataclysmic events prior to the second coming will be clear signs to us, the faithful, that Jesus is at the very gates. When we see these crazy cataclysmic events, we can know that it is happening right now. But what about Jesus' next words? Verses 30 and 31. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away 
until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I have been studying these two verses for a month now. Um, I started trying to figure out how chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse, was put together uh, when we first began uh, preaching through this passage. And I believe that uh, expositionally, exegetically, uh, verses 30 and 31, especially verse 30, uh, is the verse upon which the interpretation of this chapter hinges completely. Um, Verse 30 has several interpretations. Uh, I probably won't hit all of them, but I I, want to point a few things out, a few questions that this begins to beg in verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Which generation will not pass away? Which generation? Well, a plain reading says the generation he was speaking to. Interesting. Also, what does generation mean? Many people have said that generation was not simply a word for a, uh, about a 40-year period, but was more of a, uh, a word concerning a race of people or perhaps even the entire human race. And then Jesus says, well, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. Which things? It's another question. Which things? The entire chapter? Part of the chapter? Which things? And then take place. You might not latch on to that as a question you want to ask, but once you start studying this passage, you will. Um, What does it mean that these things will take place? because the Greek grammar here actually requires a lot of context. In order to rightly interpret this passage and really the rest of chapter 13, I want to, I, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm trying to give you tools, okay? I want you to be able to look at this passage and go, hmm, like, let me think about this a little bit. And I want you to take those tools that I'm giving you today, hopefully, and study the rest of scripture with them, Okay. Like, it's not just my job to preach to you the word, but it's my job to give to you the tools that you need to read the word and understand it for yourselves. So the, the, there's basically three things that I want to consider as we attempt to answer those questions that I just had. Which generation? What does generation mean? Uh, and then all these things, and what does take place really mean? First, I want to use Occam's razor. You know what Occam's razor is? Somebody give me a head nod. Uh, nobody, nobody knows what Occam's razor is. Uh, one, one person knows what Occam's razor is. All right. Uh, Occam's razor uh, is uh, it stated formally as entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity. In other words, the simplest interpretation is likely the best. You've heard that one before. The simple solution is the best one. Um, I think that Jesus is being plain here. And so if you're ever reading a passage and you find that your interpretation requires a whole lot of mental hoop jumping, uh, you should consider whether those are God's hoops or your hoops, okay? I'm not saying that there aren't some things in Scripture which are difficult to understand and that require some nuance, okay? But if you are beginning to come up with a system that is highly complex and you can't clearly derive that from Scripture in some way, then you're in danger, okay? Occam's razor says, let's try to be simple. I like simple. I like to read the Bible and assume that God is trying to tell me something, not trying to hide it from me, all right? So if you feel like you have to do a lot of mental hoop jumping, you should consider whether those are God's hoops or yours. That's Occam's razor. That's simplicity, okay? The second thing that I'd like us to consider in this passage is uh, is preserving Jesus' divinity. Um, obviously, we don't need to do that for him, all right? We don't need to actually preserve Jesus' divinity for him. However, uh, I admit that for the skeptic, uh, that this sort of assumption that Jesus is divine, that he is truly God, uh, is not the sort of presupposition or constraint that you might want to take on, okay? If somebody in this room today feels a little skeptical, uh, I understand. But I would say that we, pre- we can present proofs of Jesus' divinity, 
his prophecies, his miracles, his transfiguration, his resurrection, his ascension. You can go to the scriptures, and these were eyewitness events, okay? They were historical events. They weren't just made up after the fact, and we can go to the original texts, and we can trace all of the reliability of the text. Look, we can prove these things to some degree. And I believe also that any honorable attempt to interpret a set of writings uh, it has to start with the assumption that this person is trying to speak truth in some way. All right, let's assume positive intent, uh, intent here for a moment. Or at least don't just write Jesus off as if he were false by default, right? So we need to approach the scriptures trying to understand what Jesus was trying to say. But ultimately, if you are skeptical here this morning, I would say this, the core of Christianity is faith. The Greek word is pistis, and it implies trust, specifically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so while proofs of scripture abound, things like that, no Christian worth their salt will tell you that faith has nothing to do with it. But I would encourage you to look at the evidence and consider all of it. But ultimately, you have to, we will have to decide who you trust more, you or Jesus. I'd rather trust Jesus. So we're going to assume simplicity. We're going to assume Jesus' divinity. Because I think we're in good company here. Most of us probably assume this. We're also going to consider the context. Remember that... Uh, this uh, discourse, this Olivet Discourse in chapter 13 uh, is, is sort of a broader discourse. It was originally about the temple in 70 AD. The, the disciples ask this in verse 2. Uh, or he, he responds to the disciples in verse 2. There will not be left here one stone upon another. Uh, and then in verse 3, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? They're thinking about the temple, the destruction of the temple. But Jesus has now taken that up beyond the destruction of the temple, okay? He has closed this out. The, the Lord cuts short the days of that tribulation in verse 20. And then false Christ will come. And then in those days after that tribulation, he's expanded the scope of the context of his conversation, I know this is a little heady, but just bear with me, all right? So the question becomes, when he says all these things, what does he mean? I believe he actually means that simply. He intends all of the things that he has mentioned so far in his discourse. Again, from context, I believe that when he says this generation, that just thinking about context and thinking about how we apply a simple interpretation, he's actually talking about the generation of people that he was talking to at the time. I think it's a simple thing. This is a small apocalypse, but it is not using apocalyptic language, like poetic language. He's being very simple. He's saying this generation will not pass away. But this presents us with a problem, doesn't it? Let's read the passage again. Truly, I say to you, this generation, that is the generation of the disciples, will not pass away until all these things take place. What does that imply? That Jesus has already come back and he did it before 70 AD. You're like, well, okay, Greg, you've presented us with a problem. Thanks. Uh, end of sermon. No. Um, but this does present us with a problem if we don't understand what's going on here. In fact, uh, before I get to the solution here, um, I would, it's interesting, I, I, was, I was trying to find people who gave reason for, uh, for not believing what Jesus has, has said here, not believing in Jesus because of this, because this passage is difficult. It's very difficult. I mean, if this is the first time you're reading this passage and really thinking about it, like maybe you're struggling a little bit now. Well, there's a man by the name of Bertrand Russell who's, a, who's a, uh, an atheist, uh, who, who does not believe in Jesus, but he said that he does not believe in Jesus because of this passage specifically. Because when Jesus said, this generation will not pass away, and then he didn't come back before the end of that generation, that was it. He was like, well, Jesus is unreliable. I can't believe in an unreliable Jesus. Therefore, I do not believe. But, and I, look, uh, let, me, let me take a step back. If Jesus rose from the grave, he did all of the miracles and everything else. Everything else in here was right, but 
he said he was coming back and then didn't, I don't think that I could suggest to you that you put your eternal soul in his hands. That makes Jesus unreliable. It makes Jesus unreliable. And I can't trust in an unreliable God. It would shipwreck my faith if this passage did not work. But I'm here preaching to you this morning, so obviously it hasn't. But some of you are going, well, how does this work then? How does it work? Well, look, okay, our our translations are very good. Yeah, even good enough to base your faith on the English standard version of the Bible rather than going to the original texts, okay? You can read the King James Version and you can have a vibrant, true faith in Christ, okay? You can go to the NASB. Please don't go to the message. But pretty much all the other ones. The message is more of a more of a uh, a long format sermon than it is a translation of the original texts. That's the only reason I say that. I wouldn't base your entire faith on those those interpretations uh, there. Not that it's full of nasty errors or anything like that. Okay. Anyway, I digress. These translations are very very good, but there is something lost sometimes when moving from Greek to English. There's something some nuance that's sometimes lost that when studying a passage in depth like this, you've got to go to the original languages. And by the way, as a church, we do believe that the word of God is inspired and inerrant in its original languages. That's an important distinguishing factor. And so we have to sometimes go to the Greek. We have to sometimes go to the Hebrew to understand what was going on here. And this is one of those places. The words have come to pass are somewhat ambiguous in the Greek, and you have to interpret via context what that word is. So it's the Greek word genitai, and it's rendered come to pass uh, in some places. uh, Let's see, here it says all these things take place, but it can have a different focus depending on the context. This is an aorist verb. I'm learning these things as you are learning them, okay? Uh, I am not a Greek scholar. I wish that I was, uh, but I know people who are. So uh, I, I, I find reliable sources, uh, and I do my best to learn from those sources. And my understanding of this verb, come to pass or take place, is that uh, this aorist verb uh, format can mean two different things. It can either focus on completion. That would be a resultive aorist verb. You don't have to remember any of this stuff. It won't get you into heaven. All right. But I want, I want to show you that I've done my homework here. Um, you can focus on completion. Like all these things are going to, ta- to have taken place completely and totally in completion by 70 AD or by the time that the disciples uh, uh, pass away. Okay. You could take it that way. Many people do. But the better interpretation, I think, is that this genitai is intended as an ingressive aorist verb, which means, which means, bear with me, I promise, I'm going to get there. It means that there, uh, it's focused on the beginning of something that will certainly come to pass. And so the the rendering of this passage, I believe, is better uh, saying that, that, until this whole body of events has begun to come to pass. It's the ingressive aorist. He's saying this is going to start and then it will certainly and unquestionably finish at some point. And so he's, what he is actually saying here, I believe, is begin to come to pass. And so let's read that here uh, as it stands. Truly I say to you, this generation, that's the generation of the apostles, will not pass away until all these things, that is from the pre-destruction of the temple, through the destruction of the temple, etc., begin to take place. And so the destruction of the temple begins this whole series of events that will lead ultimately to his second coming sometime in the future from where we stand. So he's referring to all these things as having begun. And I believe this leads us to a very straightforward reading of this passage. He's saying, 
once the destruction of the temple has happened and once you see all of these cataclysmic events, then the Son of Man will come and all of these things will begin before the disciples died. While Jesus was sometimes cryptic in his public ministry, he was usually very, very straightforward with his disciples. Think about it. He didn't tell many parables to his disciples. He did this in public so that he could fulfill certain prophecies related to uh, people hearing but not hearing, right? But when he was with his disciples, he often explained himself very, very clearly, and I think he's doing it here. I think they would have completely understood that he meant these things are going to begin to come to pass in your lifetime. Guys, get ready. I believe that he plainly answers the disciples' questions here. And so Jesus gives us comfort, though. I mean, it's, let's, let's back up for a second. This, this chapter is scary a little bit, isn't it? Cataclysms, the end of things, can be scary a little bit. But he's giving his people comfort. Rather than being caught off guard by wars, rumors of wars, the destruction of the temple, cataclysmic events, the stars falling from the sky, and Jesus riding on a white horse coming in the clouds. Rather than being caught off guard by these things, his sheep are to remember his words, which remind us that these are necessary steps along the way that leads to his return. These are all necessary steps. But Jesus doesn't give, give us the exact time of his return, does he? In verse 32 through 37, it says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to keep awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This passage is perhaps more interesting than the last, but I don't have time to go into all of that. Let's just say this. Let's not get hung up on the idea that Jesus didn't know the day or the hour. All right, we could go for hours on exactly how the divinity of Christ relates to his humanity uh, in the incarnation. But we're not doing that today. Praise God. Somebody give me an amen. Uh, we will do that someday, I promise. Uh, but I don't want to keep you here until five o'clock tonight. I'm already hungry. I imagine you guys are too. But uh, let me just say this. Uh, Jesus assumed the limitations of humanity during his time on earth. There were times when uh, either he tapped into his divinity for supernatural knowledge or, and I think this is more likely, the Holy Spirit gave him power in his humanity. That he truly did lay aside his divinity in his incarnation uh, for a time. He never ceased to be God, but he laid those powers aside. So Jesus didn't even know in his incarnation. He didn't know. The day or the hour, the angels don't know. Only God the Father knows. We must take away from this passage that it is not for any human being to know the timing of the return of Christ. We must take that from this passage. Science will not reveal it to you. Exegesis of Scripture will not reveal it to you. The Holy Spirit will not reveal it to you. Look, if the Holy Spirit didn't reveal it to Jesus in his earthly ministry at the very moment that he needed to tell his disciples when it was going to happen, if he didn't give it to him then, what makes you think that he's going to give it to you or someone else now? No, he gave us the signs already. He gave us the signs. Keep your eyes open. You can't figure it out and you shouldn't try. And you should ignore any conclusions that people make about such things. People who preach, teach, prophesy, or whatever you want to call it, as if they know the timing of Jesus' second coming are dangerous at best and false prophets and antichrists at worst. Nothing good has ever come of this kind of speculation. And 
except that maybe God has used what man intended for evil to accomplish his good ends. These sorts of predictions are evil, but God can use them for his good ends. He always does. He uses our evil for his good ends. You know it. The crucifixion of Christ is one. You know what the punishment for false prophecy in God's name in the Old Testament was? Stoning. Death. Someone who prophesies that Jesus is coming in two days or has some sort of year figured out or whatever else should consider how seriously God takes them speaking in his name and saying something that he has never revealed to anyone, including the Son of God in his incarnation. I'm not calling for this sort of punishment. I am calling for people to understand the depth of depravity that you have reached to if you are preaching like this. I can say without question that the return of Christ is now nearer than it has ever been, but I cannot go any further than that because Jesus did not. I can preach the uncertainty of tomorrow in hopes that all of you will see the urgency of placing your faith in Christ, but no Christian should go so far as to make predictions even in order to win souls. The Holy Spirit doesn't need your intervention and your machinations on how to manipulate people into salvation. He doesn't need you. And he doesn't need any of those people out there who are prophesying and preaching like this. The Holy Spirit is far better at winning souls than the the manipulations of man. But look, this is no manipulation here. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Whether by death or by rapture, your life may come to an end sooner than you expect. And Jesus says, therefore, stay awake, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. He may come suddenly after your death, but your death may also come suddenly. I've had a few conversations recently, one just on uh, Thursday night, about predestination and election. In fact, these conversations are becoming more and more common in my household. Uh, and uh, and I, I enjoy them very much. Uh, I think we glorify God as we attempt to understand how he has saved us. I really do. I want to say this. Uh, on one hand, not a single one of God's people, known in, the, in this passage and elsewhere as the elect, will be found faithful, faithless and asleep on their last day. God will unquestionably save every single person that he has chosen to save, and it is certain and unchangeable. He promised it, and he will absolutely and unquestionably accomplish it, and all of the glory will be his, not any of it will be yours. However, God also uses the means of grace to both save and preserve his people. If you are not one of God's sheep, These warnings to stay awake will never have a permanent effect on you. You will come to church, you will check the box, you will hear the sermon, you will walk out unchanged with no desire to change. But if you are one of God's flock, you will hear his voice and you will know his voice. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, these warnings to stay awake will absolutely be applied to your heart. It might even hurt a little bit. Again, Lewis and I were talking about this the other night. We had a long conversation. God disciplines those whom he loves. It might hurt a little bit. This moment, look, I, I, I don't want any of you to be caught asleep. What does asleep mean? Well, asleep means unaware. Let me just go back to the definition of the word here. It means unaware, yes, but it also means faithless. It means you're not doing what Jesus has called you to do. Keep your eyes open. Faithless, asleep, equated with dead. I want none of you in this room to be caught unaware, to be caught asleep on your last day or on the last day. And so if, if you are one of God's elect, 
then maybe this cuts you a little bit. Maybe if it doesn't cut you today, maybe it's going to cut you 10 years from now. I don't know. I don't know. It's only for God to know. But I am hoping that today you will hear stay awake and that something in you is going to go, man, I think maybe I've been a little asleep. Maybe I have let go of the faith that I once had. Maybe I've drifted. Maybe I've backslidden a bit. Maybe I've embraced sin where I should not, which is nowhere, by the way. And so this morning, as we begin to close, I want to help you all and help me to do a self-assessment. Are you awake or are you sleeping? Are you dozing? Are you going to be caught unaware? Are you putting it off until tomorrow what you need to do right now? If you answer no to any of the questions that I'm about to ask, and it is a slew of questions, if you answer no to any of them, any of them, even one of them, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. So I want to take this seriously. It's going to be a little bit like how we uh, have sometimes done family dedication. Um, I'm not going to ask you all to, to speak back to me or anything like that, but I want to just walk through a series of questions, and I want you to do some introspection. I want you to think about who you are, and not just the surface level, okay? Just because you're in church today doesn't mean you're a Christian, all right? Do you believe that God is holy and perfect, and being your creator rightly demands that you be perfect as he is? If so, then at least you know the standard of righteousness. At least you know the, where the bar is set. If you don't, it's time to wake up. Do you believe that you are a sinner and that you are not and cannot be perfect under your own effort? If so, then you know that you have, have not and cannot live up to God's standard of righteousness. You know that good enough isn't good enough. If not, it's time to wake up. Do you believe that death and hell are the just punishment for your sins? If so, then you know that your only hope for heaven and eternal life is, is the unmerited favor, the grace of God, your righteous judge. Do you believe that the free offer of grace is extended to you in Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died a, as a perfect sacrifice, as a substitute for sinners, and rose on the third day to give us eternal life? If you believe this, then you are in a good place, but it is not yet true faith. If you believe this to be true, you have two elements of saving faith. That is knowledge. That is factual understanding. And you have cognitive assent. You understand and you think that, yes, that's out there somewhere. It's, a, it's an objective truth, right? It's, a tr it's an objective reality. But something is lacking. The last thing that is lacking is true faith. Do you trust completely in the person and work of Jesus Christ for your salvation so much that you will live the rest of your life as if it were true. There's the litmus test. Walking through all of it. You might ask, well, maybe I'm, I haven't been completely asleep, but I need to know where I need to wake up. Well, the fruit of true faith is Love for God. Do you obey his commandments? Including seeking to know him? Prayer. Worship. Yeah, worshiping together with a local body. Do you love your neighbor? It's the, a fruit of true faith. Do you put others first and serve them and sacrifice as Jesus did? On the flip side of all of that, do you hate sin? Do you actually hate sin? Where are the areas of your life where you have accepted sin? Maybe you're dozing a little bit. Because all of us, every single one of us, has areas where 
things are a little bit like they shouldn't be. Maybe today is the day to wake up. Do you gossip? Crude talk? Is that something that you work in every once in a while? Unrighteous anger? All sorts of sexual immorality? Is any of this plucking at your heart at all? Are there little places that you're going, hmm, I've ignored this because I thought it was impossible for me to overcome it? I think that's really common for us. We go, okay, it's, it, it's, it is what it is. We just sort of accept it. No, we cannot accept sin in our lives. It's time to wake up. Time to live like Jesus has commanded us to live. Live like our faith is true. And look, I'm not saying that not being perfect in all of these areas is going to deny you heaven, okay? The thief on the cross had very little to show for his faith. He had moments. He didn't have a lifelong pursuit of holiness, did he? He showed up at the gates and said, uh, I'm here. Pulling this from Lewis again. We talked for a while. But look, none of these things is going to be the, the one thing that keeps you out of heaven, okay? Jesus has paid for our, all of our sins, but Let's be real. If you're not living and hating sin and living like you, that your faith is true, then maybe your faith is not true. Maybe it's dead. Maybe it's asleep. Let's do that heart work, okay? Let's think about it. You should never be lazy and analyzing and trying to understand if you are in the faith. Never. I'm not saying that we should have some sort of myopic, you know, navel-gazing view of our own holiness, okay? But in each area of our lives, let's take some time. Maybe take time today. If you're going to lunch today, maybe talk through this with the other people in your family, the other people in your friend group. Like go home and, and, and think about what has been done, what has not been, been going on in your house. Maybe you have missed your priorities. Maybe your faith is colder and deader than you thought it was, and maybe today is the day of revival. Because look, I want to take you to one last place. Chapter 14 of this book, Mark chapter 14, verse 37. If you've been asleep, if you've been dozing a little bit, today is the day that you get to be forgiven. Because in that moment, the, the verse that I'm about to read. Jesus had asked all of his disciples, but particularly Peter, his, his best friend, to stay awake and to be interceding for him while he goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is just moments before his arrest. He says, Peter, stay awake. What happens? Verse 37, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Is this you today? Are you in this place? Maybe not completely asleep. Maybe just momentary lapse. I don't know. But if you're, if you're there today in some way, then I want to tell you this. I want to I make sure that you understand that what I'm preaching to you is not law and condemning you. There is grace in Jesus Christ for those who have been asleep. If you have been sleeping, today is the day of revival. Today is the day of resurrection. Today is the day to wake up. Because Jesus, days later, maybe even hours later, went to the cross for Peter's lack of attentiveness, his sleepiness. He went to the cross and paid for Peter to be able to sleep. <laughs> but he called Peter out of his sleepiness, didn't he, after that. When Peter arose and he even denied Jesus, and then Jesus went to the cross, what happened after Jesus' resurrection? He went to Peter and he said, 
I'm calling you out of sleepiness. It's time. So today I want you to hear that, that the gospel forgives where you have been asleep. Maybe you've been completely asleep. The gospel tells us that we are forgiven in Jesus Christ, that God's grace is sufficient, but it will not allow you to stay asleep. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.